The Achaemenid Empire lasted 208 years. The Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great lasted 231. The Roman Republic lasted 233. Romanov Russia lasted 234. Today, the United States of America is 244 years old. What happens next? Where do we go from here? What do we build out of the ashes? Hello, I'm Kanaz Filan, and these are notes from the end of time. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Notes from the End of Time. This is Kanaz Filan. I'm with you for our third episode on Tom Kaczynski's Free Atlantic Voices. Very proud to be a part of this whole operation, and tonight we're going to talk about a great cosmic question. Are we living in a computer simulation? If I'm talking to any of my fellow old geeks out there, you may remember William Gibson's book Neuromancer from the 80s. That was the book that gave us the idea of cyberspace and of living in a virtual computer reality. And if William Gibson and Atari consoles are before your time, you probably remember a movie from 1999 called The Matrix. That was back when the Lahovskis were still the Lahovsky brothers. In that movie, Samuel L. Jackson hands Keanu Reeves a red pill and awakens him to the fact that he's been living in The Matrix, a giant computer simulation that keeps him entertained while using him and other humans as an energy source. The Matrix is to Findesiecla America what Woodstock and the Summer of Love were to America in the mid-20th century, in the late 60s. The Matrix made it okay to be heterosexual and wear tight vinyl pants. The Matrix gave us long trench coats, it gave us the sunglasses, that whole aesthetic, and it also captured the zeitgeist of the time, that feeling just as the internet is starting to take off, we're suddenly realizing computers are becoming a much bigger part of our everyday lives, that we're getting a lot of information streamed at us, that a lot of people are growing increasingly interested in our information. Gene Roddenberry had envisioned holodecks in the original Star Trek in the early 60s. In 1999, virtual reality looked like it was around the corner the way the stars looked like they were just around the corner in the age of the moon landings. But as we discovered that colonizing space was going to be a lot more complicated than we first thought, the age of manned space exploration petered out. We haven't quite reached holodeck levels. We're still having difficulties with virtual reality. You know, one of our big ones is trying to make sure people don't become violently ill when the visual stimuli they're experiencing and the gravitational stimuli they're experiencing via their inner ear don't match up. But we've certainly made remarkable progress in deep fakes. We've certainly learned how to copy data and share it. We've been doing that for a couple of decades now. We've become increasingly dependent on that great interconnected 
web of machines that sends us the images, that sends us all this data. And so that sense of unreality has only become greater over the last 21 years. A few years after the release of The Matrix, in 2003, a Swedish philosopher named Nick Bostrom released a paper on the simulation argument. Bostrom's argument started out by mapping present-day trends in technology, the development of virtual reality, the mapping of the human brain. He went on from there to postulate that it was more likely than not that we were in fact digital beings living in a vast computer simulation that was created by our future descendants. Bostrom noted in his paper, which was entitled, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation?, that it is not an essential property of consciousness that it's implemented on carbon-based biological neural networks inside a cranium. Silicon-based processors inside a computer could, in principle, do the trick as well. In other words, those thoughts that you think are going on in the neurological networks inside your cranium could just as well be going on as part of a computer program. Given the advances we've made in computer science over the past several decades, is it entirely unreasonable to think that maybe our descendants will have computers that can can simulate a billion minds as easily as we can simulate weather on our supercomputers or as easily as we can play a game of Sims on our cell phone? The communicators Gene Roddenberry envisioned in the first Star Trek wouldn't even pass muster as decent communicators in the age of the iPhone. So if we imagine that the arc of technology continues on its current upward trend and I have to admit, I think that's a very big if, but I'll also admit that I'm in the minority on that. It is, after all, the age of progress, and everybody thinks that progress can do nothing but progress forward. But if you assume that they're right, within a hundred years, you know, maybe less, this could be commonplace technology. They might be able to simulate millions of human experiences in ancestor simulations in whatever sort of simulations scientists of whatever century this is think worthwhile. They might want to do this the same way game designers let people build worlds in Roblox or let them play civilization. Australian philosopher David Chalmers noted that the programmer in the next universe up may just be a teenager hacking on a computer and running five universes in the background. But it might be someone who is, nonetheless, omniscient, all-knowing, and all-powerful about our world. Simulation theory may even have its knowledge we're not meant to know. Preston Green has warned that if our universe has been created by an advanced civilization for research purposes, then it is reasonable to assume that it is crucial to the researchers that we don't find out that we're in a simulation. If we were to prove that we live inside a simulation, 
this could cause our creators to terminate the simulation, to destroy the world. As far as I'm aware, no physicist proposing simulation experiments has considered the potential hazards of this work. This is surprising, not least because Professor Bostrom himself explicitly identified simulation shutdown as a possible cause of the extinction of all human life. You may want to take this seriously. Preston Green said this in an August 10, 2019 opinion piece in the New York Times. If you can't trust the New York Times to warn you about impending dangers, who can you trust? You might note that there's kind of a religious feel about this whole simulation argument. Joshua Rothman noted that in a 2016 New Yorker article. I mean, okay, now you've got the New York Times and the New Yorker taking simulation theory seriously, so you'd best pay attention here. What Joshua Rothman said was, the simulation argument is appealing, in part, because it gives atheists a way to talk about spirituality. The idea that we're living in only a part of reality, with the whole permanently beyond our reach, can be a source of awe. About our simulators, one can ask the same questions one asks about God. Why did the creators of our world decide to include evil and suffering? Can they change that setting in the preferences? Where did the original, non-simulated world come from? In that sense, the simulation argument is a thoughtful and expansive materialist fable that is almost, but not quite, religious. There is, of course, no sanctity or holiness in the simulation argument. The people outside the simulation aren't gods, they're us. I think it's clear that what we're dealing with here is a modern religion. This is a religious idea, and so I'm going to treat it like a religious idea and just explore some of its premises and some of the conclusions we could draw from them. The first thing that jumps out at me is that it would be very computer and processor intensive to map the whereabouts of every atom in a universe at every place at every time. It would be much easier to create a planet-sized civilization. We'll call this simulation Sol 3. Within Sol 3, we would have the data for lights in the sky. You know, as the simulation progressed, we would see where the, where the subjects went with it. When they developed telescopes, we would know what data that we would feed them so that they would act upon that, and we'd see from the moment there where they go with it. Do they develop bigger telescopes? How does this affect their society? What subsidiary inventions do they create? Would they create radios that increase their capacity to gather information and to communicate with each other? Would they develop telephones, televisions, all things that they could get as they leveled up, as they acquired certain magic capacity, certain 
magic spells, you know, as it was certain technological knowledge, which you know, we would place a premium on that by making sure that only subjects of a certain intelligence, a certain social standing, all sorts of other game characteristics could master that knowledge. We would then have other constraints that we needed to fill to get that knowledge spread out through the various groups within the Sol 3 simulation. So we, in other words, we're not dealing with a real world. We're not dealing with technology. We're dealing with data that was pumped in through a simulation. Let's go further with this data. There are, at this point, around 7 billion people in the Sol 3 simulation, or so I've been told. Now, that could mean there are 7 billion fully active minds, mind simulations here, or it could mean that there are a certain number of minds that are being simulated and a certain number of non-player characters. These are not full simulations. They exist for certain purposes or to fulfill certain tasks. When you walk down the street, you see a hundred strangers around you. If you're in New York City or you're in Manhattan, you may see more than that, especially if after the COVID epidemic lifts or during a riot. In any event, there's you engage with a lot of people every day. How many of these people do you know beyond the function that they serve in your life? How well do you know the other people who work in your office building? How well do you know the people who sit beside you in class? How well do you know the people you argue with on the internet? And this is a deep existential fear that I think is going to be one of the hallmarks of the late teens and early 20s of the 21st century. In October of 2018, 4chan had such a successful troll that they managed to get over 1,500 accounts suspended on Twitter. The troll involved NPC accounts. These were fictional personas. They had gray cartoon Wojak avatars. They were called NPCs. They posed as liberal activists they had bios like fighting against Nazi racist drunk fascist Cheeto finger, and they mindlessly repeated anti-Trump talking points, Trump fascist, orange man bad, you racist. They followed each other. It started as a joke. Then Twitter suspended them on the claim that a few of the accounts had told people to vote on November 7th when, of course, Election Day is on November 6th. And that seems a little disingenuous, especially since a week earlier, the popular website Kotaku.com had written an angry article explaining how the NPC meme tries to dehumanize SJW. Author Cecilia D'Agostino blamed the NPC meme on a 2016 post in 4chan wherein the poster theorized, I have a theory that there are only a fixed quantity of souls on planet Earth that cycle continuously through reincarnation. 
However, since the human growth rate is so severe, the soulless extra walking flesh piles around us are NPCs, or ultimate normal fags, who autonomously follow groupthink and social trends in order to appear, appear convincingly human. This post went on to describe NPCs with, if you get in a discussion with them, it's always the same buzzwords and hackneyed arguments. They're the kind of people who make a show of discomfort when you break the status quo, like by breaking the normie barrier to invoke a real discussion. It's like in Avidya, when you accidentally talk to somebody twice and they give you the exact same lines word for word once more. This meme was resurrected, as good memes often are, on 4chan in 2018, and it really rattled a lot of people on the left. As Kotaku put it, the NPC meme takes things a step further into a political zone where mass outcry against, say, serial harassers, racial injustice, or Trumpian ideas is dismissed as not just inherently uncritical, but prima facie evidence of a lack of human consciousness. What makes this marginal, stale meme built on edgelord logic worth half a thought is what the idea of an NPC speaks to. NPCs have no agency. NPCs don't think for themselves. NPCs don't perceive, process, or understand. NPCs arrive at the same worldview not because it's authentic to their experiences, but automatically. As a descriptor, it suggests that those to whom it applies aren't even human, but are rather functionally robots or clusters of computer code. That this has resonated as widely as it has is funny, but it's also a little scary. And yes, it is a little scary. For a generation that grew up on screens, who get their information from screens, who spend their recreational time playing games on screens, whose social life consists of sending messages on screens to other people who read the messages on screens, it's very easy to start questioning the reality of your friendships, the reality of the people around you. If you've been on the internet, chances are you've been called a Russian bot at least once. People say Christians spend an awful lot of time worrying about whether or not they're going to hell. If you live in a simulation, how much do you have to worry if you're one of the full sims or if you're just one of the NPCs that are only there to move the plot along? And if somebody else is feeding you all the data you act on, all the things you experience, all the ideas in your head, how do you know the simulator's motivations? How can you trust the simulator? And of course, we've seen a growing distrust for data, a growing suspicion about fake news. People are convinced Sandy Hook was faked, the moon landing was faked, the earth is flat. And if you believe you're living in a simulation, those really aren't entirely unreasonable beliefs. Maybe your game space really is flat and the simulator is just using ray tracing and special graphics to make it look like three-dimensional. 
maybe Sandy Hook was just a staged event. Well, ultimately in a simulation, all events are staged events, and there's no way of knowing if there are any other players. And so, my friends, we find ourselves in a place that the philosopher René Descartes explored nearly 400 years ago. Descartes asked, can we trust our senses? And we realize our senses are imperfect. You know, our vision isn't as sharp as a hawk. So our hearing isn't as good as a dog's. Or we can't hear as high as a bat. Rene went one step further. He said, suppose there were an evil demon who was feeding every experience that I have into my head. Can I trust anything that I see Anything that I feel, smell, or taste, can I be sure that I'm really experiencing this, or is it all the product of some evil deem? What what bedrock can I find? You know, how do I know that I'm not being lied to? What can I know with absolute certainty? And he came up with an answer. It's become famous. Cogito ergo sum. I think. Cogito ergo therefore sum. I am. Descartes would go on from here to note that as a created conscious being, he had to be created by somebody. And since God was not a deceiver, truth is the being of knowledge and falsity and ignorance is its non-being. And since God is the highest being, only truth can flow from him. And I have to admit, Richard Dawkins would not find that argument particularly convincing. Neither would most modern atheists today. But if we take the simulation argument and we take away the idea of the just God, the only thing we can prove to ourselves exists is ourselves. And because we're packed primates, that kind of deep existential loneliness, most of us are going to meet that with fear, loathing, this deep kind of anxiety, and a desperate, desperate need for somebody who will tell us who we are and what it is we're supposed to do. And so much of our society, certainly the parts of our society that have most been influenced by postmodernism, prioritize the individual, the individual's needs, the individual's wants. The whole point is for the individual to have every opportunity to be the best individual the individual can be, based on whatever that individual sees as best. And this is a very modern problem. For most of recorded history, individuals knew exactly who they were. Your identity was based on your family, it was based on your tribe, your clan, later on your nation. It was based on your ancestral faith, which was typically the faith of your fathers and your grandfathers and the faith of your community. And certainly this system wasn't perfect. It led to unjust distribution of resources. Some people got more than others and some had to do with less. It led to persecutions based on, I don't like you because you belong to family A and I belong to family B. Blood feuds, there were all sorts of problems with this setup, but it worked despite those problems. 
communities stayed together, tribes stayed together, families stayed together, and individuals knew their place in the system and they knew their place in the pack. Today we're encouraged to find our own pack, to create our own identity, make for ourselves our own family. As Jean-Paul Sartre would put it, we are condemned to be free. We do not create ourselves, but we are at liberty from the moment we're thrown into the world. We're responsible for everything we do. And for Sartre, this liberation doesn't lead us to joy. It leads us to anguish when we recognize our total freedom and responsibility. We realize when we choose, we choose for ourselves and others. And most of us really don't want that responsibility. When we realize there's nobody out there to guide us, so for Sartre, there are no gods who are going to come to help us. We have to invent our own moral code, and that's a huge task. And then when we realize that the world is not going to help us with this, that at best the world is passively hostile to our intentions, we fall into despair. Now Sartre also believed that the way most people would respond to this was what he called mauvais foi or bad faith. They would run away from the responsibility of creating themselves. They would betray their responsibility to be free, to find a more comfortable slavery. Ultimately, Sartre decided the best way for him to live authentically and to reach his fullest of being was to sign on with the Communist Party and justify Stalinist excesses for decades. Because, I would argue, the things which Sartre saw as bad faith were strengths, not weaknesses. For most of history, the idea of a self-made individual, not only would they think you could not do it, they would see no reason why you should do it. The NPC meme unnerved a lot of people because it reminded them simultaneously of the responsibility they have to create themselves, which they believe that they're doing by spouting these slogans. This is how they're establishing their individual identity. And at the same time, the NPC meme reminded them of their bad faith. It reminded them they're just doing it to get along with the pack. 21st century Western society privileges what's going on between your ears to incidentals of birth. For example, you can get into a great deal of trouble for noting that there are correlations between genetics and IQ scores. You can lose your account for hate speech for saying that penises cannot be feminine even if the person who has the penis believes very strongly that Z is female. Like Sartre, the modern-day left sees the world as passively hostile at best and privileges the struggle of the individual to lead an authentic life over the needs of that world. Like Marx, the modern left believes that the individual should overthrow his or her or their or Zim or Zer's oppressors. But where Marx focused on economics, on capital and who did and did not hold it, modern American leftists, modern leftists throughout the Western world, 
Focus instead on oppression, on what makes you feel bad. Once again, we see what Kant might call the privileging of the phenomenon over the noumenon. Instead of concentrating on the world as it is, instead of trying to better understand the world as it is, the focus instead is on the world as we perceive it. Instead of concentrating on a more equitable redistribution of wealth, we're cautioned against poor shaming, against making poor people feel bad. We're supposed to empathize with poor people and honor the struggle of poor people and to treat them as special because they have one of the axes of oppression. But there's a lot less focus on actually doing things for poor people. In exchange for rejecting the material world, rejecting ancestry and heritage, and acknowledging that gender is entirely a social construct to be used as the individual sees fit, the, le the modern left offers you a whole laundry list of identities to pick and choose from. You can be any flavor of LGBTQ, AI, whatever perversion you want to practice, you can find somebody who will call you stunning and brave for practicing it. And I'm using that word perversion very deliberately because I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. The primary purpose of the sex drive is to procreate the species. The way that you procreate the species is a fertile male, a person with a penis and functioning testicles, ejaculates into the vagina of a female. That's a person who has a womb and ovaries. The sperm touch the sperm meets the egg, a zygote is formed, and from there I think we know the rest of the story. That's not to condemn anybody who's not interested in the wife, the kids, and the picket white picket fence. I've said before, and I'll say it again, I don't care what consenting adults do to or with each other in the privacy of their own homes, but I'm also at a loss as to why it's particularly stunning and brave to share your fondness for leather your status as a furry, your asexuality, you know, why must you proclaim to the world that you're not interested in sex? For the most part, gender minorities, sexual minorities, kinky people have achieved the American definition of freedom. They're allowed to live their lives undisturbed. Most Americans care no more about what their co-workers do in the bedroom then they care about their co-workers' religion, their co-workers' ethnicity, or anything else. For the benefit of a more civil workplace, bosses generally ask that you keep religious discussions out of the workplace. They really wouldn't want me trying to convert my Muslim co-worker, nor would they appreciate my Muslim co-worker trying to convert me. If you would feel uncomfortable about a co-worker's religious display, why would you put a pride flag in your cubicle knowing that it made some of your co-workers uncomfortable? And here we come to another big split between the modern, the postmodern, and the modern left. The modern left was focused on tolerance, the ability for the individual to live his or her or their life undisturbed without harassment or without persecution. The goalpost has shifted from tolerance to affirmation. 
Once again, it's that shift from the noumenon to the phenomenon. It's not enough that we make space in the real world for individuals to live their authentic lives as they see fit. We must not think badly of them. We must not criticize them. There's been this huge pushback against praying the gay away, against, well, against conversion therapy. I have no problem with that. It is cruel to subject children to electrical shocks or aversion therapy to try to help them control their same-sex urges. That's just a bad idea. I wholeheartedly support its banning. But what we've seen is people attacking church groups that offer assistance to Christians who feel that homosexuality is a sin and who wish to deal with those urges as sinful urges. Again, these are adults we're talking about. These are not children. These are not people who are being brainwashed and being dragged in. These are people who come to these church groups of their own free will. But if they try putting a page up on Facebook or advertising on Instagram or offering their service, mentioning their services on Twitter, they'll soon get flooded with complaints and often get their sites pulled as conversion therapy. Now, let me make this clear. If a gay man wants to go to a bathhouse and meet other consenting gay men and have anonymous sex with them, I would support his right to do that. Why would you not support that same gay man's right to pick up a Bible, to go to church, and to ask to be prayed to be released from homosexuality? You don't have to agree with either approach, but what about the individual's freedom? You don't have to agree with the individual's choices, but it's a pretty piss-poor freedom that only includes the right to do things you approve of. And it seems pretty clear to me that the American left is only interested in supporting such identities and such beliefs as they find useful at the moment. And this is only to be expected in a movement in a society which has rejected the idea of eternal truths. When you reject that, truth becomes whatever the strongest person says it is. Truth becomes a tool that you can manipulate towards your desired ends. Or truth becomes a few lines of code running through processors in some giant cosmic simulation. And it also brings up a very important distinction. That's the distinction between authoritarian and totalitarian philosophies. Now, I will grant you, living under either of these can suck. But an authoritarian dictator is generally concerned with law and order and with seeing that everything goes smoothly so he and his cronies can continue looting the treasury. As Bruce Bolton liked to say, a peaceful land, a quiet people. So long as you keep your head down and don't disturb things too much, you can generally get through an authoritarian dictatorship all right. It's when you start getting involved in politics or you start becoming a threat to the authoritarian dictator's goals, yeah, things can get bad for you very quickly, but there are ways to survive an authoritarian dictatorship without getting into too much trouble. A totalitarian dictator wants to change the way his society thinks 
He wants to rebuild things from the ground up. It's the difference between being ruled by some banana republic dictator and being ruled by a Pol Pot, by a Stalin, by a Mao. Any political movement which focuses so intently on what people think is sooner or later going to want to control how people think. And it is going to deal ruthlessly with wrong think. Simulation theory gives us all the comforts of a creator without giving us any responsibilities toward that creator. Who would we pray to? The developer? The designer? The kid who owns the cell phone on which our simulation is running? What myths would we make about those people? Would we talk about how they diligently manage their server farm? Would we honor them as masters of the computers of which our computers are but a pale shadow? Would you thank your creator for blessing you with these skill sets and these damage points and petition that he may grant you good luck in upcoming combats? Would you say a prayer for the laborers in the base reality toiling away in their internet cafes hoping to mine golden magic items in our Sol 3 simulation? Ancient sculptors looked to the eternal world and they gave us the great statues of Zeus and Aphrodite. Michelangelo looked to the eternal and he gave us the Sistine Chapel and the Pieta. The best we're able to come up with is a cosmic video game. Plato imagined us bound in a cave and entertained by puppeteers casting shadows on a wall and hoped to lead us out into the light and toward the eternal forms. All our modern philosophers can manage is telling us to enjoy the show. And now that we've talked about the universe as a simulation, let's talk about the more traditional view. Certainly it's the view held by Christianity, by Islam, by many sects of Hinduism. It's the idea that the universe is not a simulation. The universe is a creation. And to do that, I'm going to start by describing an oft-misunderstood term used in Catholicism, used in a lot of other religions. It's the term eternity. Today, most people think eternity means living forever, being, being forever within time. Eternity literally means outside of time. All things that are created have a beginning. In the case of our universe, we know, thanks to, the Bel to a Belgian Jesuit named Georges Lemaitre, that 13.7 billion years ago, a primal point exploded in what we call the Big Bang, and our universe winked into being. We've dated that with various methods. You know, we were helped by another constant he, sh he taught us to learn the speed at which the universe is expanding from that primal point. It's called, you know it as the Hubble constant. It's also known as in the continental Europe as the Hubble-Lametta constant. Einstein, among others, helped to establish that time is a dimension like the other three dimensions we know, height, width, and depth. And so time as we know it came into being with all of those dimensions, with all of this space and with everything within it, 13.7 billion years ago. Everything that is around us is at best 
sempiternal. That's a technical term, but it means something which has a beginning and which ha but which has no end. The human soul is sempiternal. God is eternal. God existed before time began. He will exist after time ends. There was never a time before which there was a God. There will never be a time after which there is no God. We are creatures cast into space and time, and we're bound by space and time. Our physical bodies have physical limitations. Our vision of what was and what will be is foggy at best. God who created space and time is not bound by space and time. Boethius explained eternity in his Consolation of Philosophy. Eternity is the possession of endless life, whole and perfect, at a single moment. For whatever lives in time is a present proceeding from the past to the future, and there is nothing set in time which can embrace the whole space of its life together. Tomorrow's life it grasps not yet, while it has already lost yesterday's, Nay, even in the life today ye live no longer than one brief transitory moment. Whatever, therefore, is subject to the condition of time, although, as Aristotle deemed of the world, it never have either beginning or end, and its life he stretched to the whole extent of time's infinity, it yet is not such as rightly to be thought eternal, for it does not include and embrace the whole space of infinite life at once, but has no present hold on things to come, not yet accomplished. Now because we are creatures caught in space and time, it's very easy for us to get distracted by the here and now. We have a natural moral instinct but we're also frequently tempted to ignore it. Now there's another important distinction, the sensible and the intelligible worlds. Now the sensible world is that which we perceive with our senses, you know, what we see, what we hear. We also have an intelligible world. For example, you can't see or taste mathematics, but you can do proofs and show that your conclusions are correct. You can apply geometry and trigonometry to build cathedrals, so you have evidence to back up that you've got, you're have got you on to something in the intelligible world. While the intelligible world and intellectual pursuits are not without their joys, sensible stimuli are a lot more immediate. It's really hard to think when you feel something real strongly, when you're in pain, when you're tired, when you're horny. And one of the best ways we've found to avoid momentary distractions is to focus on the eternal that lets us just step outside the here and now for a second. It lets us see past our personal needs and desires. It reminds us we're part of an ongoing process that was old when our ancestors were young. We're not just a bunch of atomized individuals left to seek whatever distraction we can find. Instead of just being animals seeking our place in the pack, we can become sparks of a divine light with a divine purpose, and we can become participants in our own redemption. And I know that probably sounds pretty funny to a lot of people listening. I mean, oh, so you're telling me I should pray the rosary to work on my porn addiction? Yes, absolutely. 
it can't hurt and it can only help. I know, praying to the Virgin, believing in Jesus, that's all childish stuff. And I'm not going to argue the point with you. I've said before, and I'm sure I will say again, I greatly struggle with the idea that a man could be born of a virgin and rise from the dead. But I have no problem believing that my ancestors accomplished glorious things in the name of that man and under the shadow of that man's cross. Neither do I have difficulty believing that the world was a better and a happier place when the resurrection and the virgin birth were taken as matters of fact and not pretty allegories, or that the world was a better and a happier place when they saw Jesus not as a world teacher, but as the Son of the Almighty and the ever-living God. And so I'd like to read a passage from G.K. Chesterton's Heresies. This is an absolutely brilliant dissection of modern morality and of our desperate need for the eternal. A modern morality can only point with absolute conviction to the horrors that follow breaches of law. Its only certainty is a certainty of ill. It can only point to imperfection. It has no perfection to point to. But the monk meditating upon Christ or Buddha has in his mind an image of perfect health, a thing of clear colors and clean air. He may contemplate this ideal wholeness and happiness far more than he ought. He may contemplate it to the neglect of exclusion of essential things. He may contemplate it until he has become a dreamer or a driveler, but still it is wholeness and happiness that he is contemplating. He may even go mad, but he is going mad for the love of sanity. But the modern student of ethics, even if he remains sane, remains sane from an insane dread of insanity. The anchorite rolling on the stones in a frenzy of submission is a healthier person fundamentally than many a sober man in a silk hat who is walking down Cheapside. For many such are good only through a withering knowledge of evil. I am not at this moment claiming for the devotee anything more than this primary advantage, that though he may be making himself personally weak and miserable, he is still fixing his thoughts largely on gigantic strength and happiness, on a strength that has no limits and a happiness that has no end. Doubtless there are other objections which can be urged without unreason against the influence of God's envisions in morality, whether in the cell or the street. But this advantage the mystic morality must always have. It is always jollier. A young man may keep himself from vice by continually thinking of disease. He may keep himself from it also by continually thinking of the Virgin Mary. There may be question about which method is the most reasonable, or even about which is the more efficient. But surely there can be no question about which is the more wholesome. I remember a pamphlet by that able and sincere secularist, Mr. G.W. Foote, which contained a phrase sharply symbolizing and dividing these two methods. The pamphlet was called Beer and Bible, those two very noble things, all the nobler for a conjunction with Mr. Foote and his stern old Puritan way, seemed to think sardonic, but which I confess to thinking appropriate and charming. I have not the work by me, but I remember that Mr. Foote dismissed very contemptuously any attempts to deal with the problem of strong drink by religious offices or intercessions, and said that a picture of a drunkard's liver would be more efficacious in the matter of temperance than any prayer or praise. In that picturesque expression, it seems to me, 
is perfectly embodied the incurable morbidity of modern ethics. In that temple, the lights are low, the crowds kneel, the solemn anthems are uplifted. But that upon the altar to which all men kneel is no longer the perfect flesh, the body and substance of the perfect man. It is still flesh, but it is diseased. It is the drunkard's liver of the New Testament that is marred for us, which we take in remembrance of him. The simulation hypothesis frees us from the terror of a vengeful God and replaces it with the low comedy of a board system administrator. It replaces an apocalypse with an ending brought by a system crash, by a loss of data. Our world will end not with an angel's trumpet, but with a corrupted backup disk. Christianity's creation myth has Adam and Eve eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The simulation hypothesis would take that knowledge back and replace it with a world where playing Darth Vader could be every bit as much fun as playing Obi-Wan Kenobi. And where Christianity told us we were children of God made in, the image, in his immortal image and possessed of an immortal soul, simulation theory tells us we can change our appearance, our gender, our gender identity, our ideas, or anything about ourselves as easily as we can change skins on our avatar. It's the great paradise promised by Hassan Sabah, the old man of the mountains. Nothing is true and everything is permissible. And back in my edgelord, Coyote Kitty days, back when you used to have to get your alternative information through zines, any of my listeners remember zines? And at that time, it just seemed like such a profound, liberating idea. Nothing is true. Everything is permissible. Woohoo! Well, I've spent a few years living in a world where nothing is true and everything is permissible. I've stood atop Mount Alamut and I've seen the fruits of that philosophy. I've seen it applied to Western civilization, to America. I was wrong. It is not a liberating philosophy. It is a dangerous, toxic, poisonous philosophy. And I've come to believe there is a creator. There is a maker of all things seen and unseen. I do not understand that maker because I cannot understand that maker. He's beyond what my wetware can handle. And that's fine. There are lots of things in the universe I don't understand. Lots of things in the universe I can't understand. The universe's existence is not contingent on my understanding it, and neither is God's existence. I'm told this is a world where we can choose our own truths. I choose the eternal truth that shone in Bethlehem on a Christmas night 2,020 years ago, give or take a year. This is a world where we choose our own families. Well, I choose the family of Christ. This is a world where we can build our own lives. I build my life upon the rock where our Lord built his church. And if this is a world where I get to tell my own story, then I want my story to be a part of the church penitent, the church militant, and the church triumphant. I can't tell you which story to follow. I am a man of questionable faith, questionable morals, and a questionable past trying desperately to make sense out of a crazy world. And of course, I understand that those myths and those stories are not going to have the same kind of resonance for my non-Catholic or my non-Christian listeners. So let me phrase the issue. Let's look at it from a different perspective. 
I'm going to bring in a philosopher who's not really known for his Christianity, although he has influenced a number of Christian thinkers, the great German philosopher Martin Heidegger. Heidegger spent the better part of his career focused on the question, what does to be mean? He wrote a very long and very dense tome on that subject called Sein und Zeit, or as we know it in English, Being and Time. One of Heidegger's big concerns was the way that we were allowing technology to change the way our way of being in the world. For Heidegger, technology was a gestellen, an enframing, that caused us to reduce the entire human, human experience, to reduce everything around us to its utilitarian value. It's telling the two major philosophies that come out of the Industrial Revolution, capitalism and communism, both reduce the human experience to economic equations. The example he gives famously in his 1977 essay, Question Concerning Technology, describes a power plant on the Rhine River. The hydroelectric plant is set into the current of the Rhine. It sets the Rhine to supplying its hydraulic pressure, which then sets the turbines turning. This turning sets those machines in motion whose thrust sets going the electric current for which the long-distance power station and its network of cables are set up to dispatch electricity. In the context of the interlocking processes pertaining to the orderly disposition of electrical energy, even the Rhine itself appears as something at our command. The hydroelectric plant is not built into the Rhine River as was the old wooden bridge that joined bank with bank for hundreds of years. Rather, the river is dammed up into the power plant. What the river is now, namely a water power supplier, derives from out of essence of the power station. In order that we may even remotely consider the monstrousness that reigns here, let us ponder for a moment the contrast that speaks out of the two titles the Rhine as dammed up in the power works, and the Rhine as uttered out of the artwork in Holderlein's hymn by that name. But it will be replied, the Rhine is still a river in the landscape, is it not? Perhaps. But how? In no other way than as an object on call for inspection by a tour group ordered there by the vacation industry. Heidegger went on to more detail concerning technicity and technology in a 1966 interview with the German magazine Der Spiegel. This interview was not published until after Heidegger's 1976 death, as per his instructions. In that interview, Heidegger said, The last 30 years have made it clearer that the planet-wide movement of modern technicity is a power whose magnitude in determining our history can hardly be overestimated. For me today, it is a decisive question as to how any political system, and which one, can be adapted to an epoch of technicity. I know of no answer to this question. I am not convinced that it is democracy. Everything is functioning. That is precisely what is awesome, that everything functions that the functioning propels everything more and more toward further functioning, and that technicity increasingly dislodges man and uproots him from the earth. The interviewer noted, Obviously you see a world movement. This is the way you too have expressed it, that either is bringing about an absolutely technical state or has done so already. Heidegger. That's right. Interviewer. Fine. 
Now the question naturally arises. Can the individual man in any way still influence this web of fateful circumstance? Or indeed, can philosophy influence it? Or can both together influence it insofar as philosophy guides the individual or several individuals to a determined action? Heidegger, if I may answer briefly and perhaps clumsily, but after long reflection, philosophy will be unable to affect any immediate change in the current state of the world. This is true not only of philosophy, but of all purely human reflection and endeavor. Only a god can save us. The only possibility available to us is that by thinking and poetizing, we prepare a readiness for the appearance of a god, or for the absence of a god in our decline, insofar as in view of the absent god we are in a state of decline. And so that's what I hope to do. Like Heidegger, I believe that our only hope is a reframing back to a God-centered world, back to a world of eternal truths, back to that world which recognized the divine. And so, though I be a flawed man, though I be a flawed believer, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is Kanaz Phelan. You've been listening to Notes from the End of Time. Thank you for listening, and may God bless and keep us each and every one.